Good morning, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us for our Retail Strategies webinar, How to Utilize Historic Tax Credits for Your Community Redevelopment. We're so honored to be joined today by Dr. Stephen McNair, and I'll introduce him in just a moment. Um, but first, want to introduce myself and tell you a little bit about our company and what we'll be talking about today. My name is Jen Gregory, and I'm the president of Downtown Strategies for our company, Retail Strategies. Many of you are familiar with the main role of our company, which is national retail recruitment um, and really specializing in real estate for our client and partner communities. At Downtown Strategies, our perspective and our approach is a little bit different. We really focus on the interior core of communities through redevelopment, revitalization, placemaking, and certainly historic preservation, which is what we'll be discussing today. Um, I head up our office in Mississippi and actually am coming to you guys today from Louisiana. Stephen is coming to you guys today from Mobile, Alabama. So before we get in depth too much, we do want to mention that we're mindful uh, today about our friends and partners um, on the Gulf Coast. Um, obviously with the threat and even current damage and devastation that folks are experiencing across the Gulf Coast. Um, we're certainly mindful of that and, and keeping all of you in our thoughts. Also to our West Coast friends that are experiencing threats or concern from wildfires. Um, we're thinking about you guys and certainly um, wish all of you the best and, and hope that you and your communities stay safe. So my background is in downtown revitalization and in community development. And so it's been a great privilege of mine to work with the Retail Strategies team, developing downtown strategies and working with communities on really utilizing their downtowns, uh, their core areas as economic engines and ways to really showcase the great things about their communities and also make an economic impact. And that's what we're gonna talk a lot about today. Through Downtown Strategies, our process is really to assist communities that are taking their first step through downtown revitalization or even their next step. Uh, we know that revitalizing or rejuvenating communities is a complex task, and we're certainly committed to helping you achieve that. We identify and create a tailored strategy to enhance, revitalize, and mobilize your community's efforts. And we know that when properly fueled, that your downtown can be a powerful economic tourism and quality of life engine. And our team of professionals is here to help you achieve that and to empower you. And so we're so appreciative of those of you that have joined us today. We have an excellent crowd um, and really appreciate the time that you've taken to join us today to learn about this specific thing um, and the specific tool that can help your communities. Our company is an industry leader through retail real estate and through community development. And we partner with Main Street America and the International Downtown Association, specifically on the downtown level. Um, and we know that many of you are affiliated with those organizations as well. Before I introduce Dr. Stephen McNair, just a couple of housekeeping things that I wanna mention. Um, on the right-hand control panel that many of you have on your screen, there is a question box. So as we're going through this webinar today, 
if you have something that comes to mind or a question um, that you want to ask Dr. McNair, <clears throat> please feel free to enter it in that box. And at the end of this presentation, we'll take a couple of minutes to answer your questions. So feel free to enter those questions throughout the presentation. It certainly won't interrupt what we're doing, and we'll come back to those at the end. Um, also, this presentation, the, the deck that you're going to be viewing today, and the recording of this webinar will be avail available to you after the webinar. So we'll be reaching out to you, sending you those recordings and files. So no need to take feverish notes. Uh, we hope that you'll stay engaged and uh, really listen to, to what we're privileged to hear about today. So right now, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Stephen McNair. Stephen McNair is the owner and senior consultant of McNair Historic Preservation, Inc. Before starting the firm in 2015, Stephen served in various governmental and nonprofit roles, furthering the cause of historic preservation in Louisiana, Scotland, and Alabama. He's currently serving on the executive board of Preservation Action, which is a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit that develops and advocates for historic economic development legislation. Dr. McNair received his Bachelor of Arts from the University of Alabama, a Master's in Historic Preservation Architecture from Tulane, and a PhD in Architectural History from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. So it's a real privilege for us to hear from you, Stephen, and thank you so much for joining us today. Jen, thank you very much. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here today, and uh, uh, I'm thrilled to be a part of this and, and, and to be a part of what Downtown Strategies is doing for the country. So thank you very much for the opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Well, let's go ahead and get started. I briefly introduced you, but tell us a little bit about yourself and your firm and why you have a love and passion for historic preservation. Sure. So, so I've really had a passion for architectural history and, and historic buildings since uh, probably when I was in high school. And uh, uh, it's just a, a natural inc uh, inclination to want to wanna protect and save these buildings. And, and growing up in Mobile, a city with uh, so much architectural history and, and architectural culture, that really led to me having an appreciation for what that can do for a community and what that can do for uh, the quality of life of a city. And so uh, that led me down the path of, uh, of getting a degree at Tulane in, uh, uh, in preservation architecture and uh, working in the city of New Orleans for the city government and the, and the post-Katrina recovery for many years. And then uh, moving abroad and working in Scotland, uh, in Edinburgh, receiving my doctorate while working for a nonprofit over there and, uh, and also a, a World Heritage Organization. So it's really something that I've had a passion for since I was a teenager. And I'm thrilled to be a part of the, the private sector uh, portion of this now. Well, that's excellent. And, you know, it's interesting in the communities that we work with really across the country, you know, we experience so often how transformational historic resources that are revitalized or rehabbed can be for communities, for economic perspectives and also for aesthetic perspectives. But we run into time and time again that folks just don't really understand how they work and especially these historic tax credits, which can be so important to making deals happen. So let's jump right in, Stephen, and if you can, tell us a little bit about how historic tax credits work and what does the community need to do to really get started in this realm? Well, first to touch on how important they are to a community, I, I, without question, the state and federal historic tax credit programs uh, ha have been proven to be the catalyst for uh, really billions of dollars since the 1980s when these when these programs were uh, first introduced in economic activity because 
you know, the, 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 the way this works is it, it's a program that preserves and protects and rehabilitates historic buildings without question, but it also creates jobs. And uh, because you can't just fix up an old building for the sake of fixing up an old building if you don't place it into service, if you want to receive these incentives. And so viewing it from a local perspective as a as a jobs program and a preservation program, I think, is the best way to go about this, since since you can't have one without the other. And so uh, we'll get into the nuts and bolts of how to apply and what qualifies and things like that in just a few minutes. But uh, but the, the gist of it is that this is a program that helps offset. Uh, federal income taxes um, uh, for commercial buildings that qualify for uh, the National Register of Historic Places um, and also certain qualifications on expenditures. Uh, but what a community needs to do to get started is they need to contact their state historic preservation office. So every state has a SHPO, a state historic preservation office. And so that really is step one because every state is going to have a dedicated staff member who's going to be uh, paid to help you uh, with this process and kind of shepherd you through the applications um, and, and and really kind of give you the 101 breakdown of what it's going to take. Now we'll get into building your own team and actually getting a project off the ground, but in terms of just getting the basic information, uh, contact your State Historic Preservation Office. So we'll start with the details here. So the Federal Historic Tax Credit Program is a three-step application. Uh, and we'll get to the, the different uh, steps in a second, but the gist of it is it's a 20% federal income tax credit. So it's not a, a cash refund. Uh, it's not a deduction from your taxes or a write-off. It's as if you've already prepaid or overpaid your taxes to the federal government. And so uh, the way it used to work before the 2017, 2018 changeover was that somebody had 20 years to use these credits. Well, the way it works now is you have five years and you have to use them equally over that five year period. Um, and so that that's taken a few years for a lot of developers to get used to. But I feel like the things have kind of settled down and people really understand how to do that now. Um, but for an el for a property to even be eligible, first things first, it's got to be at least eligible for listing on the National Register, um, which means it typically has to be 50 years of age. Now, some uh, properties are in a historic district that maybe hasn't been updated for 10 or 20 years, and so it's eligible and you have to flip it to be contributing. Some properties are individually eligible. Uh, some properties are already listed as being eligible. So you, that's the kind of thing where checking with your state historic preservation officer to see what the status of the property is before you do anything uh, while you're doing your due diligence. That's really step one. It has to be income producing, meaning it can't be your private home. Um, it has to be substantially rehabilitated. And there is a there's a federal formula for this. And the reason that it has to be, quote, substantially rehabilitated, uh, according to the IRS and the National Park Service, is they don't want people applying for historic tax credits for one window, uh, a few buckets of paint. It's really got to be worth your while and worth their while. And so there's a formula that uh, that essentially you have to look at which is your purchase price and land value and how much you're going to put into the project. So um, we'll get into that in just a little while, but that's something you've, you've got to you got to pay attention to to make sure it's going to be worth everybody's while. Uh, it's got to be a certified project, meaning that it does the building has to be certified as being historic. Um, and then we went over this. It's the it's for your tax liability five year program. And uh, and you see below at the bottom a 10 percent tax credit. So part of that 2017-2018 IRS tax overhaul 
um, eliminated not only that 20-year carry forward on the on the 20% credit, but it also totally eliminated the 10% program. So in your office, uh, if you have any kind of old manuals from your state preservation office or from the National Park Service that's older than 2017, you're going to see a 10% program in there. Uh, unless you started working on your building in 2017, early 2018, and it's still underway, then you're not going to be eligible for that 10%. So what expenditures are eligible? Uh, think of it this way, all of your hard cost and all of your soft cost as related to the rehabilitation of the proper building. That is what's eligible. So in other words, we'll start with what's not eligible. Buying it doesn't count. New construction and additions doesn't count. Landscaping and parking, furniture, um, any, any kind of interior window treatments, uh, signage and marketing. So if you notice, none of those items relate to the rehabilitation of the building itself. It's all exterior or removable things, or, or I'm sorry, uh, uh, not exterior, but, but new, new, new construction, uh, removable items like furniture, site work, signage, marketing. So once you take all of that out, everything else is potentially eligible to count as your QRE, your Qualified Rehabilitation Expenditure List. And you want to obviously have the more QREs, the better, uh, because 20% of your total budget uh, is going to be your, uh, your credit. And so that's why the more QREs, the larger your credit. Um, so if you look at this, your engineering firm uh, cost, your architecture firm, uh, that's gonna be your soft cost. And so uh, in, in addition to those kind of soft costs, your legal consulting fees, your accountants, your uh, interest on a construction loan, insurance on the project, all of those things count because without those things, the project can't move forward. And then, of course, there's your hard cost, which is your bricks and mortar, your uh, your roofing and your, 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 your typical labor and construction cost. Um, and so you always want to make sure that you, you, you get every penny possible. And you're probably thinking like, well, all I wanted to do was maybe renovate the second floor of a building and put a new roof on it. Well, once you throw in all your soft cost on top of that, you can really hit that that substantial rehabilitation test a little easier uh, depending on um, depending on your finishes and depending on your budget. But but the soft cost really can make a project much more advantageous in terms of going after these federal credits. And I should mention that uh, about 35 percent of the states have a state historic tax credit program. We're not going to go into the details on that today because most states, they differ just slightly, whether it's a 20% program or 25% or whether it offsets your state income taxes or it's maybe a cash refund, which you do see in some states. So be sure that if you're interested in the federal program, check with your state uh, because you may be able to get both uh, when, you're, when you're rehabilitating your building. So how does this work? So the first thing you're going to do with the federal application is you're going to submit it to your state historic preservation office. Uh, here I've got the Alabama Historical Commission, that's my home state. And so even though the final approvals come from Washington, it still has to go through an approval process at your state level. Uh, this process is really where you're going to work out some of the kinks in terms of, of, of what the state thinks the feds will approve. Um, and what they think may not be approved. And so that's where working with your state historic preservation office is very important because there's always some give and take in terms of, uh, of what you want to see versus 
maybe what is approvable or what the uh, SHPO or what the National Park Service thinks is approvable. Uh, but that's that's really where your first round of comments are going to come from. And typically those comments are given back to the to the to the property owner within about 30 days of submission. Now, from there, you have the option to say, uh, right, OK, we, we appreciate those comments. But you know what? We're going to roll the dice and send it to Washington. Or you can maybe tinker with the application, change a few things and then send it to Washington. So it's really up to you, because ultimately for the federal program, the states do not make the decision. They're only there to help guide you and, and help you through the process. So once it goes through your state office, then it goes off to Washington, and that's where the National Park Service and the Department of the Interior, uh, they're going to look at uh, every application in full detail, and they're going to look at uh, all three phases of the application, which we'll get to in a few slides. But, but ultimately, the decision in terms of what you want to do if it's approvable if your finishes will work if you're you know if you have a new addition if it's compatible with the old uh, historic uh, historic fabric all of those decisions come from from washington and then once the project is completed then you'll get a form back from the national park service that you submit to the irs uh, so this is not a process that is fast uh, i'm just not going to sugarcoat it it takes a while and uh if you have a tenant tapping their foot saying, I need to be in a building in the next 30 to 60 days, or if you, for whatever reason, have uh, have a timetable that's 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 tight, this, pro this process and this application process may not be for you um, because it's going to take at least 30 days at your state level. And then I typically see anywhere between probably 60 to 90 days in Washington just to get a response. Uh, and then from there, it may be a response that requires more information or new drawings or or whatever the case is. So you really have got to budget in a lot of time on the front end before you do any work to make sure that what you want to do is going to be compliant and to make sure that you don't start work before you receive the approvals and spend money that's not going to be approved. So, uh, so you really need to budget in a fair amount of time. So the application process, though, to make sure that you don't do an entire rehabilitation only to get a letter saying, sorry, it doesn't count, to make sure that doesn't happen, there is a three-step process, uh, three-step application process. Uh, the part one, evaluation of significance, that's a little, that, that, that can be considered kind of your due diligence application. And that application is the, is the first one you submit that essentially indicates to the state and the feds what it is they're even looking at. Um, you've got to remember, uh, more times than not, no, nobody from your state office or from the federal government is going to come and look at your building. Uh, it's extremely rare to see that happen. Um, they, they may not be familiar even with the town that it's in. Uh, so what you've got to do is you've got to paint that picture. You've got to do all the research in terms of not only the architectural significance and the architectural style and the finishes, but really the full picture of what it is that we're starting with. What is the base level of, the, of this project? And so that means that all of the existing conditions, uh, not only in written form, but also in, in photographs and drawings, all of that has to be submitted under the pretense that the person reviewing in Washington, like I said, will probably uh, never see this building in person. And so you've got you've to fully explain what it is we're starting with. And, and, and again, sometimes it's already on the National Register, so that process is a little easier. And sometimes you're having to make the argument that something should be listed on the National Register kind of preliminary in a preliminary sense during that part one. So so depending if it's listed or not, the building that is, 
uh, can depend on how the, uh, scrutinized that part one is, but you always have to submit drawings and photographs, all of your as-built conditions. So let's say you, you submit that and everything's approved. Then you move on to part two. And the part two is what is it that you want to do with the property? That's where your proposed drawings come in. That's where your full description of work in terms of the interior and exterior of, 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 the, of the property comes in, uh, where you've got to describe everything in detail about not only what you want to do, but then how it's going to impact the existing historic finishes. Uh, and so that's where your full set of proposed drawings come in. Um, and you can submit your part one and part two at the same time, which I highly recommend to, to expedite the review process. Um, that, that really is, is, a, is a great way to kind of get things moving as fast as possible. So the part two is really where those comments come in, where your state may push back and say that they, you know, want wood flooring instead of LBT in a certain space, or maybe the windows you propose don't meet the criteria for uh, being, um, you know, historically relevant or matching the historic fabric of the building. So, so the part two is where the negotiation comes in. So once you get your part two approval, that's when you start your work. That's when you do the project, you follow the rules, you, you follow the guidelines you've been given by your, by your state and by the feds. And then once the project is finished, that's when the part three is submitted, which essentially is more drawings and photographs just showing the, the completion of the work. So you wanna make sure that the photographs you submit and the reports you submit with your part three match up with what you were given permission to do for your part two. Because essentially, people ask me all the time, they say, you know, is an inspector from the IRS going to come down and walk through this building? Is, is there going to be an inspection from the National Park Service? The answer is really no, you are the inspector. And so that part three, you are the, you are the person who really is the eyes and ears of the National Park Service. So, you know, you've got to show the photographs in every space and every room to make sure that the people in Washington fully understand and appreciate the work that you've put into these projects. And then once the part three is completed, that's when you uh, can start to um, uh, use the tax credits on your income tax uh, forms. So risk management is a big part of any historic preservation uh, consultant's job. And so I spend a lot of time mitigating risk with developers and, and with communities and uh, property owners, just making sure that they fully understand this process and during the process, know how to follow the rules. And that, and that means working with architects, working with contractors, setting expectations in terms of timetables and budgets. And so uh, really making sure that you've got a plan early on and you contact your state, that's very important because you don't wanna, uh, I don't know, take something to the bank and, and, and guarantee them that you know, it's, you're gonna get tax credits or maybe buy a property under the pretense that you're gonna get credits without really knowing. And so doing your due diligence on the front end uh, is, is crucial. Uh, and submitting complete applications to your state historic preservation office before you begin work. So there is a small window where, let's say you have a roof collapsing. Well, the, the state and the feds, they understand that, you know, if their process takes, you know, two or three months and you have a roof collapsing, that's not going to do. And so they do allow you to do kind of emergency repairs. If you need to shore up a wall, if you need to put decking on a roof, you can go ahead and do that even while the major portion of your application is being considered because the last thing they want to do is through their review process, create a situation where more damage has occurred because everybody's sitting around waiting for something to happen. So, uh, but other than emergency repairs, uh, it really is smart to wait to receive your approval because the last thing you want to do is 
buy materials and install them just to have to have them ripped out. Um, so waiting as long as possible to get those um, uh, letters from the from the park services is, is very important. Uh, taking good clear photos before work begins to make sure there's no surprises. Uh, giving the full scope of work. So when you submit your part two, you know if there's some spaces where you say we'll get to them later, and you don't tell the park service what it is you want to do, and then you just decide on your own later, you know what what's going to happen in those spaces. You can really uh, compromise or jeopardize the receiving the historic tax credits because it's an all or none deal. I get that question a lot saying like, well, look, if I do whatever I want in this one room, can I just deduct 10% off the credits and get the other 90% because 90% of the building is done to the standards they're supposed to be. And now you really can't do that. It's an all or none deal. So you've really got to be upfront with the park service uh, and during the process about what it is you want to do. And they also fully understand that during the construction process or maybe even before things change you know let's say you have a tenant that needs certain plumbing or certain fixtures and that tenant leaves and you need something else you can always file amendments to change your scope of work before during after the project uh to make sure that everybody's on the same page um i mean let's say that the project is just taking longer than it should or let's say you find more damage in a certain place than you than you understood before you started. You can always submit amendments to just kind of keep everybody updated and change your scope of work. Um, don't begin work until you get the approvals. And then in terms of, of, of risk management, so going back to the part one, identifying the character defining features of a building. All right, so the Park Service fully understands that, you know, we're gonna get to some examples here, but if you have, let's say, uh, you, as you'll see, an automobile dealership from the 1920s, that is that building is never going to be used as an automobile dealership again. Um, the features don't work. It's too small. You know, the way that we buy and sell cars these days is just very different than we did 100 years ago. And so it's not that the Park Service expects you to uh, use that building in the way that it was first uh, constructed to be used. What they intend you to do is keep the character defining features as part of your adaptive reuse. So in other words, while uh, maybe that car dealership today is apartments, I don't know, in 40, 50 years, it could be a restaurant, it could be commercial office spaces, but you always wanna make sure you keep those character defining features of the original building, and that way people can appreciate and understand that it was that car dealership. And that's a fine line, especially when it comes to code compliance and ADA regulations and fire upgrades and those kind of things, but We'll get to that, but that, but the character-defining features as you identify in your part one, um, that's going to be very important, the way the kind of tone of your project moves forward. Um, complete work is previously approved or submit project amendments. We went over that. Um, you can change your scope at any time. Uh, keep the standards in mind. And when you hear the standards, those are the standards for rehabilitation uh, as defined by the National Park Service. Um, and so they do have some guidance on that. The standards are vague, uh, and the standards are vague on purpose because the standards of rehabilitation are meant to guide you the same way as if you're in Portland, Maine, or Portland, Oregon, because they don't have the really the the time or the bandwidth to make you know to to do specific standards for every community, and so it's very general um, information. But that's where things like character defining features come in, which is of course very general, but you kind of know it when you see it. 
Now, for any project, you're going to want a team. And this is this is what I wanted to get to earlier about once you contact your state and kind of feel like you want to do a project, you've got to have the right team. I know your uncle might be a contractor. I know your cousin might be um, uh, an architect. If they don't know what they're doing with historic buildings, then find somebody else because uh, that's what's going to be the difference in a project really taking off and being successful or dragging on or not getting the credits is you want to make sure you have the right architect, the right consultant, the right contractor, the right accountant. You've got to have the team and you need to make sure the team interacts uh, throughout the entire process. Make sure that, you know, while the architect is working on the design, that the contractor's budget uh, matches what maybe the QREs are going to be with your accountant. So that way there's no questions even within your team as you move forward. So interviewing the right people, having the right team, keeping everybody on the same page with weekly or bi-weekly meetings, that is absolutely the difference between a project that is successful and one that's very frustrating. Uh, also, you have to pay a fee. Uh, there's a there's a part two and a part three application fee with the National Park Service. Typically, those are a couple thousand dollars, but you do have to pay that for the project to be reviewed in, in Washington. So if you if you don't start till you have the approvals, if you have the right team, um, if you listen to the state and the feds, then then this process, while it can be tedious and, and it does take a little while, it can still be wildly successful. It's just you have to be patient with it. So common fails proceeding uh, with work before you have the approvals, refusing to negotiate. You know, that's something I see very often where somebody sends an application to Washington and uh, essentially it's denied for whatever reason. Let's say they want to put a, a large new addition on the front of a building that compromises the character of it, or they want to rip out a bunch of original windows um, uh, instead of compromising. Um, it's a give and take. Um, you know, you, you, they're, they're, they're there are ways to make these projects successful and there's ways to kill them and not negotiating, that's a good way to kill it every time. Uh, because ultimately there's there's an appeal process in Washington with the National Park Service, but really whatever they say on the part two, uh, if you don't follow that, then you're really jeopardizing receiving those credits. Uh, another pitfall is assuming that local review is the same thing as receiving approval for your tax credit design. So what I mean there is just because you have, let's say a local historic commission in your town or your community, uh, they're gonna have an opinion on the exterior of a building, but their approval has really no weight on the National Park Service approval of your, of your property. So don't ever assume that just because your local officials have given you permission to, let's say, replace windows, that the Park Service is going to agree with that decision. Uh, the, the Park Service is their own reviewing agency. They, they make up their own reviewing rules. And so um, you've got to make sure that you're on board with both entities, but ultimately one does not equal approval of the other. So I'm really glad that you mentioned about the, you know, the time clock, Stephen, and how these projects do take time. That's something that we hear a lot. And and oftentimes uh, communities say, you know, is it even really worth it for me to go through this process? It's going to take long. There are a lot of boxes to check. Um, but then we hear a lot of other kind of misconceptions uh, about historic preservation in general, about 
you know, what a property being listed on the National Register does and doesn't mean for communities. So if you can, you know, help us kind of demystify uh, some of these misconceptions and, and tell us a little bit about what you've heard from communities in the past that maybe you can help us demystify. Sure, sure. So, so first things first, uh, the National Park Service, more times than not, does not care what paint color you use. <laughs> that is the number one question I get all day long from people saying, well, I don't want my building to be considered historic because then somebody in Washington picks up my paint color. I'm not sure who started that rumor, but uh, boy, do they not care about that. Um, really, the way to look at it is being listed on the National Register does not prevent you from doing anything. It doesn't mean you have to preserve your building in a certain way. It doesn't mean that you have to never change anything. It doesn't mean that it limits you in terms of zoning or development or anything like that. The National Register incentivizes you to do certain things by offering you tax incentives, tax credits, and protection from other federal agencies, which I'll get to in a second, but it doesn't stop you from doing anything. If you own a house that's on the National Register, even individually listed or a building, any property, and let's say it's not in a local district, let's say it's just out in the middle of a farm somewhere, you can tear it down. There's nobody, there's no federal entity that's gonna prevent you from doing that. The way historic preservation works in terms of those kind of reviews is not top down, it's bottom up. Meaning your local historic preservation commission, those are the guys who are gonna have the, the ability to prevent demolition or to prevent something from being done to the exterior that may compromise the building. Um, but it, it incentivizes you to do certain things so you get free money and tax breaks, but it doesn't prevent you from doing anything. And to be listed, it's not as if George Washington had to have slept there or it has to have white columns on it like an antebellum home. I mean, there are plenty of buildings uh, that have um, relatively small amount of significance, but when you pull them together in a district, they become significant. Um, and so that's something to think about is that it, it, it's not as if you know, you, you have to have it being, I know it's the, the national register, but it doesn't have to necessarily be nationally important. Local importance and state importance is, is works just the same. Um, now, in terms of protecting you from other federal agencies, there's something called the Section 106 review process. And essentially what that means is that if you have a building that's on the national register or eligible for the national register or a historic district, then the feds, or I'm sorry, the federal money and federal programs can't be used to do anything that might cause damage uh, to these properties. So for instance, roads, that's the primary uh, example. If you have a, a smaller community uh, or a larger community and you have uh, a National Register Historic District, uh, you can't use federal money to do things like widen roads uh, through the middle of town or add a expressway or an overpass that's gonna have any kind of negative impact on, on those structures. In other words, they don't want federal money being used that may have a negative impact on another federal program. Um, so, so, so being listed on the National Register in terms of a district, in terms of downtowns especially, can really save your community. And that's why you see a lot of bypasses around a lot of towns because they couldn't widen the main road through the middle of town. Um, and just to give you a, a quick story about that, really all of this came about because of uh, a proposed elevated expressway down Decatur Street in New Orleans, which if anybody's familiar with Jackson Square, between Jackson Square and the river is Decatur Street. Well, there was a there was an elevated expressway approved right through there, right through the quarter, 
And it, it was, I mean, shovel ready, ready to go. And thankfully enough preservation advocates stopped it. But it was, that was really the catalyst that led to that kind of thought of, well, we don't want federal money interfering with nationally registered historic properties. Um, so it really can be to your advantage. Um, and we'll go through the process in a second here about um, who's eligible and how to apply and things like that. But it, it, it's really only a benefit being listed on the National Register of Historic Places. So uh, what it is, it, it's really just a list of properties uh, that have been evaluated uh, by your State Historic Preservation Office and also uh, the National Park Service. It can be structures, it can be a district, it can be archeological, um, it can be individual listings. And whether you're listed as a landmark or listed individually or listed within a district, it's all the same in terms of incentives. There's no uh, level that gives you more tax credits or, or anything like that. I mean, if you're, if you're, if you're a contributing property, then it's all the same across the board. Uh, the program is administered by the National Park Service uh, and uh, a property is listed by first submitting it to your state and every state has a National Register Review Committee. And what they're gonna do is they're gonna work with the staff and work with uh, whoever submitted the, the application to make sure the history is correct, kind of do some fact checking, help them with things like maps and photographs and uh, kind of go over the narrative to make sure that you know, it's a cohesive argument. And if you look back at the National Register listings from like the 80s and even some from the 90s, yeah, a lot of them are like four pages. I mean, there's really not a lot to it. Some of them, I mean, it's it's four or five paragraphs and a couple of photos and that's it. Uh, I can tell you times have changed. The ones I'm having to do now, they're almost like dissertations. I mean, it, it is really incredible the amount of information that is required now to list a property individually on the National Register. I mean, it, it, it is, um, above and beyond but but nevertheless i mean that that's that's just the way that the, the national park service operates now uh so if you're gonna do if you're gonna try to list a property individually you've really got to spend some time on it um and most of these if i'm listing a building individually it typically takes about a year uh to get it listed after you go back and forth with the state and then back and forth with the feds uh and if you're listing a district uh, it takes about the same amount of time because you have to do all the field work and photography and kind of the back and forth with maps and uh, things like that with the state and the feds. So it takes about a year. Um, now, uh, relating back to the historic tax credit program, what I said was that a, a property has to be either on the National Register to receive these credits or eligible to be listed. So if you have a property that is just eligible to be listed, but it's not listed yet, you can still move forward with the tax credits. But at some point, I think it's there's a five-year window or maybe a seven-year window, I forget. You, you do have to make sure that property is listed as contributing on the National Register at some point. So you can go ahead and start your tax credits, but you also need to be working on the National Register listing at the same time uh, to make sure that it, once the project is finished that everything lines up. And so you have these committees that kind of determine uh, the determination of eligibility. Uh, but but the, the basic rule of thumb is uh, 50 years. Um, if a building uh, or archaeological site or group of buildings are 50 years of age or more and have not been altered beyond their character defining features or altered beyond their historical significance, uh, then the building on the exterior, then the, the, then the properties are potentially eligible. The big difference in individual versus uh, a group listing in a district is if you do a district, you're only evaluating the exterior. 
Uh, if you're doing an individual listing, you're looking at the inside and the outside. That's really the biggest difference in terms of the review process. Um, and so you've got to look at the significance. You know, maybe it's a building that's just a concrete box, but in that concrete box was something very important to the uh, the commercial industry in your community, or maybe uh, the person who owned it, or 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 whatever case. I mean, it's it's not as if every building has to be um, something you would see in a coffee table book in terms of architectural significance. Um, it really has a lot more to do with the content, the, the greater context and narrative of why the building is important within that community. Um, and so that concrete box, if it's on the shore of of somewhere in Louisiana, and it was maybe the first oyster processing building in the state's history, that's extremely important. While if that box was inland, maybe 100 miles, it wouldn't have any significance. And so you've got to look at it in context when it comes to every one of these properties. And so the age of a building, 50 years. If it's not 50 years, it's got to be. It's got to be nationally significant. The Superdome was listed before 50 years, but it was like 48 years. Um, so generally, to save yourself a lot of consternation wait till a property is 50 years, which uh, is now, you know, 1970. Uh, so we're into the 70s now in terms of what counts as being historically relevant and interesting and um, uh, significant to the National Park Service, um, which is terrifying to a lot of people uh, who don't like that 1970s architecture, but, but here we are. Um, and so they're gonna be looking at the location of it, the design, the setting, materials, craftsmanship, uh, feeling and association. So you see these are very vague general terms because they don't want, they want more properties listed than not. And so they want to, they really want to see as many as they can listed. Um, and so all of this is going to go to your state office and then off to the feds. But, but having a tight historic narrative fully explaining why this is important in context is, is crucial. Um, and so I've got some examples here that we're going to go through of of individual listings. Uh, I didn't want to do any 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 district listings. I feel like everybody's pretty familiar with historic districts at this point. I mean, whether it's a commercial district or residential, it's pretty straightforward, and, and most communities have those, so they understand. Um, but uh, but when it comes to individual listings, this is a building here just turned 50 years of age uh, this year. Um, well, the construction was started 51 years ago, uh, but it was completed 50 years. But uh, this was a uh, really, the the uh, the first large commercial building of this skyscraper type in the city of Birmingham. Uh, it was used by uh, South Central Bell, later AT and T. Um, but you see the character defining features here. Obviously, the the exterior, the materials they're using, the use of concrete, large uh, steel, large uh, um, large windows. We see in the lobby. We see marble. We see um, a big open space. And so, for instance, with this particular building you really wouldn't be able to come into that lobby, let's say, and uh, um, you know, rip everything out. I mean, you would have to keep the, those kind of features as they are to list it on the National Register and to receive tax credits. But all of the upper floors were just big open floor plans with cubicles in it. And so you do have a lot of leeway because like I said about the kind of the old um, automobile dealership, this building is now gonna be used as apartments and not commercial space. And so as long as you're not doing things like putting drywall in front of the large windows or or getting in the way of shared spaces and lobbies and things like that, you do have a lot of leeway for adaptive reuse. Uh, but this is a great example of a building that just turned the corner of being significant uh, in, the, in the context of, of Birmingham, Alabama. And this next one I love to use because you look at it and you think, well, that's a 
flat roof, one story concrete box with some storefront windows. Why in the world could that be listed individually? Well, again, within the context of Mobile, when this was built, it was designed by Arch Winner, who went on to win uh, quite a few national architectural awards. This was the first building of this type ever constructed in Mobile with the flat roof and with the, the, the form of concrete being used as architectural features. Uh, the large storefront windows, also the placement of this building where something this modern and cutting edge was used as a feed and seed store kind of in, a, in what at the time was a rural area was significant. And so when you put all of those things on top of each other and kind of layer it with who the architect was, the design is unique, it hasn't been altered and changed, the context of when and why it was constructed, when you layer all of that, it becomes significant. And uh, it's not part of a district because there's really nothing else around it that's significant. Um, so that one was was allowed to be listed individually. And also uh, it was just renovated as a historic tax credit project. So what you see there is the finished project product. Uh, the next one here is probably something more traditional that somebody would think of in terms of a historic building. This is the last antebellum uh, Creole cottage um, outside of the downtown area in Mobile. Uh, you know, this is uh, this is towards the Spring Hill area, um, and so it is listed individually. We still see some of the outbuildings that are there. The grounds are still landscaped, uh, and so this this was listed individually because not only is there really nothing else around it to create a district, uh, but this is the last form of this kind within a, about the, about four miles or five miles, um, and so that's why this was so important. And this is this is the type of architectural and cultural importance that, that is really beyond one town that really uh, goes to the entire Gulf Coast region. Uh, and so this is uh, soon to be renovated as, as part of a historic tax credit project. They're going to make this into a very low impact law firm and kind of keep all of the features and keep the keep the landscaping as it is, but, uh, but still do an adaptive reuse. But this was listed individually. And if you again, when you go back and look at those applications, this was listed individually, not by our firm by one in the 70s and it's like a four-page application uh the application that i i'm sorry the property in birmingham that i showed you this is like a 20-page application uh so you've really got to dig in and, and have the right researcher and consultants to, to help you with these uh if you if you really want them to happen within that year uh this is uh, i showed you bluebird hardware the one-story flat roof building that was arch winner's first design where he kind of experimented with materials this was his last design. And so you see kind of where these properties, uh, where how he transitioned. So this is the uh, Al Dolphin Club located on the shores of Dolphin Island, Alabama. Um, this won pretty much every major national architectural award you, you can think of when it was completed. Uh, I mean, he went on speaking tours to talk about it. And so you see that just because that first building maybe doesn't have a lot of character, it's still just as important when you look at the total body of work of the, of the architecture of the town but also of the architect himself and so if, if anybody has the chance the Aldolphine club is incredible uh, they still serve food and they you can go swimming you can play golf um, it's really a throwback to kind of a madman era experience where you can get a, a cocktail and a prime rib for ten dollars but uh, but it's it's definitely worth checking out if you're ever on Dolphin Island Um, Stephen, those pictures are, are terrific because they help our audience and even myself really kind of understand and put into context this very specific realm of opportunities for not only getting 
you know, districts or properties on the National Register, but also understanding how those tax credits can really help make projects happen. You know, oftentimes we hear about these types of historic tax credit projects happening in more urban downtowns and in more urban communities with high populations and big, big projects. But you've also worked on some in, in smaller communities that many of the participants on the webinar today can probably relate to. Can you give us an example of a redevelopment project that you've been involved in that utilize historic tax credits and maybe even reference some where you've worked in smaller communities? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the smaller communities, that's really where my passion is. And, and our firm, you know, we work across the country. We have clients from Massachusetts to New Orleans. And so we work in a lot of smaller towns where maybe you have, you know, one main street or one or two large commercial buildings where uh, people want to put in new apartments or put in a hotel or something like that. So, I mean, it's one thing to do these projects in, an, in a large urban center where one building is important, but really it's part of just something much larger. But one catalytic historic tax credit project in a smaller community can be the difference, can be the difference. And so we really enjoy doing those kind of projects. But uh, I mean, when you look at, let's say, Atmore, Alabama, we're working on four projects there, um, two of which are side by side. One of them is a two story hardware store. The other one is a uh, circa 1920 uh, theater. And so, we're, you know, they're going to have commercial spaces released. They're going to have art lofts. They're going to have the theater back open. And so those two buildings side by side, that's going to be the draw for the entire downtown once they're finished. Um, you know, we're working on a few projects in smaller communities like Andalusia. Uh, we've done projects in Monroeville, Selma, quite a few small towns in Mississippi and Louisiana. So um, absolutely. I mean, never think that, you, that a project is, is too small, um, you know, if, if you really think it's worth your while. And so we'll, I'm going to go through some of the projects that I've done. Now, a lot of these are within one historic district in Mobile. I thought just for the sake of continuity, I would kind of keep them together. But uh, this was a new historic district that was created on one street uh, in downtown, and it's the Automobile Alley National Register Historic District. Uh, and so as you would expect, this is where all of the automobile dealerships were first constructed in Mobile. Uh, it was the first street ever built downtown for cars. Uh, so it's much wider and so there's off-street parking it was all kind of the whole concept of the planning of it was considered with automobiles in mind uh, not only the use but the sale thereof and so we begin with the um, dodge brothers graham brothers building uh, this is how it looked when it was completed and this is how it looked when we started uh, you see that somebody took it upon themselves to pick out a fine paint color cover all the windows it was abandoned i mean there were homeless people living inside uh, so it was really just a total gut job. It had some original steel windows, but this was this was one that really took a lot of doing to get back on the on the tax rolls. But thankfully, a developer bought it who was a, a owner of an engineering firm, and so now it houses about 50 um, good-paying engineering jobs in downtown Mobile. So we started there and ended here. Um, all of those windows that you do see on the storefront, those are brand new. Uh, the transom windows are new because there was nothing there behind that plywood. Um, now let's talk about code for a second because while this is on the Gulf Coast, hurricane code uh, has, plays a role in this. So for instance, the National Park Service didn't want the two large mullions that you see, you know, dividing the storefront windows. But once we wrote back and said, right, well, we have the Dade County regulations here, as is most of Florida and the Mississippi, Louisiana and Alabama Gulf Coast, we have to have mullions for hurricane code. 
they said, okay, well, that's fine. And so that's where that give and take comes in, whether it's with fire code or ADA compliance, you, you really have to kind of educate the reviewer on what it is they're looking at. Because like I said, when we started, they're never gonna come look at these. Uh, so you've gotta make sure you tell them what you want. So here's the finished product. Um, halfway through, yeah, here's the removal of the paint. We see DB, uh, Dodge Brothers, GB, Grand Brothers. Grand Brothers sold pickup trucks. Uh, and Dodge was obviously automobiles. So very slowly taking the paint off in, uh, in accordance with the standards for rehabilitation as to not uh, damage the brick, uh, meaning very light on the chemicals, if any, really using low pressure water, scrubbing it by hand. And when you're finished, you get the original look. We see the tile that's exposed. Went back and painted the um, terracotta there. So, so it really came out looking just as it did the day it was finished. This is just the front view. We put the awning back. We're really trying to match that historic photo as much as we could. Um, but again, it's never gonna be a car dealership and they understood that. And so keeping the character defining features was crucial. And so here we see midway through construction, one of the character defining features was the difference between the lobby area where you would have seen cars on display in the windows, uh, you would have signed your paperwork, you know, it would have been a much more comfortable, well-finished area as opposed to the other 80% of the building where they did oil changes and storage and tire rotations and things like that. And so you see it's dirty, but you see the, the original tile floor there on the left where the original, um, you know, waiting room and showroom was. You notice the ceiling is dropped in that area. Uh, as, as opposed to the exposed steel beams in the back. And so what we had to do was really maintain that differentiation uh, so that people could understand where those two spaces were. But you see all of the new um, you know, office walls we have going up there. But also notice that none of them are so tall as to cover the exposed steel beams. You know, They're almost like cloud offices with their own little ceilings. And so here we see the tile is finished. Um, you can see on the next slide how the yeah there we go so so all the offices are, are there but it's not floor to ceiling we see the exposed hvac system here um and we see of course the, the steel beams because the whole point is while this is an engineering firm today in 20 years this could be apartments and so when you rip out and change all of these features that were added in today you don't want to do any damage to the original historic fabric and so none of this that was added in did any damage or changed the character you can clearly still see inside and out this was a car dealership no question about it and so that's where that you know it when you see it kind of character defining aspect comes in next we have the old red cross building this was also originally a um they, they sold old oldsmobiles but also kind of home appliances and things like that uh the red cross came in in the 1980s and just really did a number on the interior and and then abandoned it after hurricane katrina uh, mobile received a new uh, Red Cross Center. And so this was abandoned for uh, really about 15 years. Uh, this is the finished product. So all of the brick has been cleaned, new, new storefront windows. We see new exterior lighting, landscaping. Uh, and this is now apartments, co-working. I um, say so here's the interior before. So the uh, the two shots on the top there, those are, you see the curved storefront. Uh, where it was covered over. Um, there's a large two-story open space there on the bottom left. Um, and that's where, you know, again, your automobiles would have been stored and your appliances and things like that. Uh, and so, you know, going back to character-defining features, keeping that as a large open space was very important to the Park Service. They didn't want us putting offices in there, 
but the rest of it they did allow us to kind of add some have some liberty to add some space into so here's the finished product we see um there are some cubicles behind the some of these views especially the top left one uh where we have co-working space we have event space it's now a bar and restaurant uh they do weddings and stuff there um but there's no question you know the original characters maintained but this has new hvac new plumbing new electrical um uh, sprinkler systems you know everything's up to code everything's ada compliant and so when you're looking at your hard cost and your soft cost all of that counts you know a lot of people say well i'm just putting in a new air conditioner well that counts you know all of that counts as your as your hard cost uh back to automobile alley just around the corner uh you see the sign it says out front press register uh this was a this was for a short time the mobile press register newspaper center uh, but it was also originally a, an automobile dealership and showroom. Uh, so here's how it looked when it was completed. Uh, this is circa 1920. Here's how it looked when we started. Uh, so again, windows, I'm sorry, windows are gone. Uh, the brick has been painted. You know, it wasn't abandoned, but it was a storage facility, kind of self-storage. And then also they did a lot of shredding of documents and things like that. So it was really just a few people in one office with lots and lots of boxes of paper from uh law firms not really contributing to the greater kind of downtown economy that you would expect from a building like this and here's how it looked when we're finished uh, i think i've i think i've lost control of the slides there we are and so uh here's how it is when we're finished so we see the windows that could be restored were restored uh, new steel windows to match were put in, in other places, but you know we didn't really have to add anything on these two elevations. On the rear, they did allow us to put some new windows in for the apartments. So we have apartments on the second floor. We have a brewery on the ground floor. Um, all of the brick has been fully repointed. Everything's been brought up to code. And here's the interior. We see the tap room on the bottom right. Uh, we see apartments on the left and on the top and so again you know this had a real industrial look to it because a lot of this really was storage and so that so you see the the tap room on the bottom that was kind of your your showroom and then the rest of it um we were we were told to keep all those kind of industrial aspects to this um uh to maintain the character of what this was um you know for the automobile dealership and so this is a great example of keeping those cool features this is now a fully rented building in downtown the brewery is doing extremely well. There's also some office space in here, but this was just a, a one, this one building, you know, was catalytic to the entire area with that kind of halo effect where, you know, success breeds success. And so that's, that, those are just a few examples of historic tax credit buildings adapted for uses. But, um, you know, I know that was a lot of information. We went over the National Register tax credits and, you know, by all means, if you'll have any questions, uh, please let me know. And then, uh, if you need to get in touch with me, uh, just please go to mcnairhp.com. Excellent, Stephen. Thank you so much for sharing all of your your wisdom and your technical assistance on this, you know, somewhat complex topic. Um, we really appreciate that. Love seeing the pictures of the before and after. I think that can really help communities, you know, understand how this can be um, really a useful tool for communities of all sizes and for development projects. Um, we do have a couple questions and we have about one more minute left in, in the webinar. So 
I'm going to pick out just a few. Um, for those of you that did ask questions that we don't have a chance to get to, we'll be reaching out to you and, and answering those questions after the fact. Um, but a question that I think is important and uh, that we see, you know, pretty often um, is, is this. Our downtown area is on the National Register already. It covers several blocks of this historic area. How can these credits be used? If there are many private owners of the property, do they apply individually? The answer to that is yes. Uh, so, uh, so an individual or entity would have to apply per building, unless, of course, those buildings were all constructed, you know, connected to each other in like a complex or something like that. But if it's just a, let's just say, a traditional main street with maybe four or five different commercial buildings built around the same time, but but um, but individually constructed, then yes, each of them would have to apply um, uh, for those for, to, 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 to be, you know, to be told if they can be, uh, or if they receive state and federal historic tax credits. Perfect, okay, and then last question, Stephen. If a historic building is owned by a municipality, can the tax credit program be utilized if the municipality partners with a for-profit corporation on a public-private partnership? Yeah, it can be, and that's that's a great question. I get that question a lot in terms of, can I sell my credits? What are they worth? You know, How do I structure these kind of things? And that's where having the right accountant, having the right uh, attorney comes into play. But keep in mind that nonprofits and municipalities, they can't use the credits traditionally in a traditional sense because they don't pay federal income taxes. And so if you don't pay federal income tax, then a tax credit does you no good. Uh, so long-term leases with a private entity that is that does pay taxes, that's really the best way to structure this, where the long-term lease uh, lessee um, can can use the credits. Um, but uh, yeah, there are ways to structure this. And then when it comes to selling credits, it used to be a lot easier. And and there's been some Supreme Court cases to kind of um, define you know how this works now. But essentially. If you don't have a project where the budget is at least, I'm going to say, $3 million, maybe more, then selling the credits really isn't worth your time, uh, especially now that they have to be used equally over that five-year period. Um, so unless it's an extremely large project, I would not really factor in selling the credits. Um, but uh, but in terms of structuring it with the public-private partnership, yeah, the long-term lease um, uh, strategy is the way to go on that one. Excellent. Okay, well, that takes us to the conclusion of this webinar. Stephen, again, thank you so much for joining us. Um, everyone that joined for this webinar, we appreciate your time and we appreciate you tuning in to learn more about this topic. You can see both Stephen and my contact information at the bottom of your screen. Please feel free if you have specific questions or want to know how Stephen and his firm can help you and your community with your historic preservation needs please contact him. You see all of his information there. And then if you'd like to learn a little bit more about downtown strategies and how we help communities with strategic visioning for their downtowns and identify catalyst projects uh, that can be used to really take your downtown to the next level, um, please contact me. I'd love to talk with you more about that. Again, you'll be receiving a recording of this webinar and the presentation deck in your inboxes sometime tomorrow. So please look for that. And we appreciate your time. We hope that you'll continue to tune in for our retail webinar series. And we hope all of you have a great day. Thanks so much.